Yeah, I think I said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that was, was buried in there someplace. But I'm Don? annoyed at this point. I'm annoyed. Don? And can I say one more thing? Nick, can you cut his mic? <laughs> I, I, I want to say one more thing. Welcome to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by About Brexit. <laughs> Brexit. Brexit. Have you guys have you guys been following Never Brexit heard of at it. all? No. It's it a, makes, it's a kind of breakfast cereal, as I recall. No, I don't think it's so. kinda like that, like but Weedabix. it makes no sense. And every day it seems like will they it feels like you know what it feels like? Will they, won't they? It feels like Ross and Rachel all over again. <laughs> and I just can't figure out. Is it is it is it is it gonna happen or is it not gonna happen? I don't know. So anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Department of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here. As always, with Chris Gill and Don Thea. No, but you're really not. You're in London. Still. That is a really good point, but the script says I'm here, as always, so we can't deviate from the script. Anyway, they are from the Departments of Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and they are in the Godly Studio. I am in London. It's spring now, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know whether it actually is officially spring or not. The weather is starting to get nice, so now is the time to get ahead with your spring planting. And in order to do so, you should head on over to the Population Health Exchange website, where you will find nothing related to gardening tools or advice whatsoever. Well, but I you will advice. be able to find lifelong learning programs, tools, and classes. Go ahead and check it out at pophealthex.org. That's www.pophealthex.org. So my advice is that you not plant tulip bulbs because the squirrels will eat them all. It's very frustrating. And even when you soak them in Tabasco sauce, as I did several summer winters ago when I was planting my bulbs, I dunked all my my tulip bulbs in Tabasco sauce to make them. And I covered them with a chili powder. And then I also mixed them with cat litter and they still ate them. Ew. Really gross. I, I th- yeah, these are these are Cajun squirrels in my neighborhood or something. Maybe you should have gone well, to Population Health Exchange first. Well, yeah, you really should. There's got to be some tools on there that'll help you with that. And if you find that you're not interested in Chris's uh, cayenne squirrels, instead what you could do is you could go to iTunes and you could give us a rating. <laughs> Spicy, on, Cajun-like. On any of your major <laughs> podcast You could put five chilies on it. You can put whatever you want on there. <laughs> Now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to go back to the MMR and autism debate. Not that there is any debate, but we are going to go back to it once again because we are forced to. Because there's a new huge study that just came out on the topic, and so we're going to break that one down. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about whether email is making us stupid. (laughs) <laughs> and that would be professors in general, not just the three of us, which I think is it's questionable as to whether or not we were already there. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get to some things that have made us laugh out loud, or Don will give us some advice on whether to keep our underwear dry or not. We should. We should. I, I think the answer is, yeah, is yes. The answer is almost always Does yes. Does not require so let's go science. Into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that once again looked at the MMR vaccine. Uh, It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Once again, I have to ask the question, what is internal medicine? And why is there no external medicine? It is. That's called dermatology, first of all. And internal medicine is the opposite of surgery. So medicine, the field of medicine in general, medicine, small m, splits into 
the physicians, who are the internists and the pediatricians, and the surgeons. Who are the externists? Who are the ones who make holes in you. So it's the people who wield the scaffolds versus the people who push the pills. And internal medicine is adult medicine as opposed to pediatrics. Well, so this was from Annals of Internal Medicine. And the study was entitled Measles, Mumps, Rivella, Vaccination, and Autism, a Nationwide Cohort Study by Anders Fied of the Departments of Epidemiology Research at the Staten Serum Institute in Copenhagen, Denmark, along with colleagues. So this one, you know, given that this MMR and autism, you won't be surprised to learn that this was picked up by a lot of news outlets. It had been picked up by 120 news outlets within 24 hours of publication, from what I could tell. So here are a few of the headlines. As measles outbreak spreads, study finds no link between vaccine and autism. That was Yahoo Finance. I don't know why. Yahoo Finance. No link between autism and measles, mumps, rubella vaccine study finds. That's usnews.com. Again. Yet another scientific study shows no link between vaccines vaccines and autism. How many studies is this now? Dozens? Uh, Yep. And amid measles outbreak, Senate hearing to discuss how vaccines save lives, says CNN News. Obviously, that says nothing about the study, but that was one of the studies uh, that came up when you linked to it. And then the last one, which I thought was interesting from Vox.com. Research fraud catalyzed the anti-vaccination movement. Let's not repeat history. Here, here. So at mm. least I, that was a good one. So Don, can you walk us through this study? Uh, given that this is a topic that we have done before, yep. what's what's kind of new, yep. if anything, here? Um, yeah, as you mentioned, Matt, we are in the midst of a real global outbreak in terms of measles, and it's it's producing a tremendous amount of consternation in many, many sectors. I think it's important to, to realize that measles is one of the most contagious diseases that exists. It might, in ha- fact, be officially number the, one for the humans. the most contagious disease. I don't know if there are any animal diseases Highly that are contagious. more. But... You, you can contract measles after going into a room that somebody who has had measles in four hours earlier and get measles. So it's, it's wow. enormously... Um, contagious, and we are in the midst in the developed and the developing world of of lots and lots of outbreaks. I think at last count, CDC said that there were twelve individual outbreaks. There was one that was just announced yesterday in New Jersey of measles in the United States. Um, last year, Ukraine had thirty five thousand cases. Madagascar has had sixty eight thousand cases. France itself has had twenty seven hundred cases. And it's due to uh, a, a lot of different reasons, but essentially boils down to a break in the infrastructure, which is accounting for measles in Yemen and and, uh, and Venezuela, um, but also a lot of vaccine hesitancy, which this particular issue has fed into tremendously. And the amount of damage done by the Wakefield paper just continues to accrue. We're, we're pointing out the Wakefield paper is one that we talked about in one of our earliest episodes. I think it was episode episodes. two or three, wasn't it? Episode four. two or three, yeah. Nick is telling us episode four. Episode four. In fact, a st- there's a state senator in the United States, Senator Linda Wilson, recent, recently said she believes the measles vaccine has caused more harm than the disease itself. And that is just so categorically untrue and based in... Disprovable. Not, disprovable. Utterly disproved. Yeah. Um, it's a dangerous disease, even though um, many of us, or at least the older ones of us, had measles when we were young, and it was an uncomfortable disease. It does kill about one in a thousand children who are infected. As Matt mentioned, there have been a number of studies, and, and as 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 uh, Chris was saying, a number of studies that have debunked this, including two Institute of Medicine reviews that systematically went through all of the evidence to date, not including this study, and and categorically said that there is no association between measles and um, autism. You know, measles who, vaccine and autism. Who who one of the most famous victims of measles was was Roald Dahl's daughter, 
who died of measles encephalitis. Ooh, really? Back in the in the sixties. Yeah. Mm, didn't know that. So, so in any event, um, let's let's get down to this study, which, in my opinion, is is a, a another quite large nail in the coffin in terms of dealing with this particular um, fallacious association. So this is a study that came out of um, Denmark, and we've done a, a couple of other studies um, using similar sorts of approaches where they, they cull data from the extensive registries that exist in Denmark and a number of Scandinavian countries. They use the Danish Civil Registration, the National Health Service Registry, and the Psychiatric Central Registry, which allowed them to pull together data that had occurred over the course of 10 years from um, January 99 to December of 2010. And essentially what they did is they pulled all of the vaccination data and all of the autism and autism-associated diagnoses from these databases. They culled the autism diagnoses, including autistic disorder, atypical autism, Asperger's syndrome, other pervasive developmental disorder, and unspecified pervasive developmental disorder. Those are the outcomes that they looked for in these databases. They also, uh, and one of the strengths of this paper, was that they were able to look at other conditions that have been shown to predispose to the development of autism or are otherwise associated with autism, completely separate from the issue of the the correlation between the vaccine and autism. And there's eight specific diseases that predispose one to, to, to developing autism. And the question was whether in this very specialized population, the receipt of the vaccine somehow tip them over to developing autism. This Fragile X syndrome, tuberous sclerosis, Engelman syndrome, Down syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome, neurofibromatosis, Prader-Willi syndrome, and congenital rubella syndrome. So they had a large enough population so that they were able to do sort of sub-analyses in those particular areas. In addition to that, there are some hypothetical environmental factors which seem to um, perhaps, I think it's far from proven, but perhaps predisposed to the development of autism, and that's maternal age, paternal age, Smoking during pregnancy, method of delivery, preterm, five-minute um, APGAR score, low birth weight, and head circumference. Oh, so having a, a sibling also with, with uh, autism spectrum disorder also seems to confer an increased risk. So they pulled together a very large database, and they looked at those particular factors. And I think that there were 663,000 children that were initially identified, of which 5,775 5, were excluded, leaving 657,000 individuals and 5 million child, he, child years of observation and approximately, sorry? That is a lot. Yeah, that's, it's a huge data set. And of that 657,000, 625,000 of them, or about 95%, were in fact vaccinated, um, according to the schedule that I mentioned before. And there were 31,000, about 5%, that were not vaccinated. So they had, a, had pretty good groups to compare. They did survival analysis on this data set starting at year one to the first diagnosis of autism or, or one of those other autism-associated conditions, death, emigration out of, the, out of the country, unexplained disappearance from registers, or the end of the study, which um, occurred on August 2013. Receipt of MMR and a sibling with autism diagnosis were time-dependent variables, meaning that they could change over time, over the, over the observation period. You could, you could fall into one or the other group. And then they did a series of sensitivity analyses, looking at different ASD diagnosis combinations, and then also looking at the second MMR dose, which was at 12 months. 
No, year, 12 years. 12 years, sorry. And, I, and yeah. actually, it shifted to four years in 2008 when they changed their policy. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, but the primary analysis was receipt of only one M MMR. Um, there were 6,518 cases that were censored for various reasons. The mean attained age during the observation period was 8.6 years, and the mean age at first autism diagnosis was 7.2. The MMR uptake, as I mentioned, was 95%. And the, for the primary analysis, they came up with a hazard ratio of um, MMR vaccinated versus MMR not vaccinated for the development of one of these ASD conditions of 0.93 with a confidence interval of 0.85 to 1.02. So pretty... In, in other words, not, not harmful and potentially a smidge protective. Right. Per, perhaps, 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 but with a perhaps, I'm just but just, a very I'm unsupportive confidence but, interval. I but, say, but I agree with Matt's what's saying is that like if anything, it's protected. The, the data suggested that getting the MMR reduced your risk of if autism. Anything. But you I, that's stretching it. Stretch, but it probably has no impact whatsoever either way. Right. Okay. Um, there were some subgroup analyses. The um, when they looked at the early cohort, i.e. 2000, no, with 1999 to 2001. They, in fact, found a more pronounced effect in the direction that you're talking about, Chris. So protective. Protective. So protective. the hazard ratio was 0 0.79. So it could be that with the cumulative increasing recognition of um, the amount of autism that, that is, seems to be occurring worldwide, that in an earlier era, there was perhaps a more pronounced um, protective effect. But I think that's, that's a stretch. Maybe. And there was also no increase if children got other vaccines at a high rate, including the MMR vaccine, and specifically if they had a sibling with autism, there was no association. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because one, one of the analyses that they did do, sort of completely separate from the receipt of the MMR vaccine, was there are hazard ratios for specific characteristics, and one of them was being male gender. One was being in the late cohort. So the male gender was a 4.02 hazard ratio. The being in the late cohort, 2008 to 2010, the hazard ratio was 1.34. No early vaccines was 1.17. And a uh, autism spectrum disorder sibling conferred a 7.32 hazard ratio. Again, distinct and separate from whether they got the vaccine. It was just really an association with that particular factor and the develop, subsequent development of autism. So a big, a big non-association with a very powerful data set. A big non-association in a more seemingly confirmation of, of what we think maybe we already knew. I, it's worth noting that the reason why they did this study and, and it, to get to the points that you raised, Don, about the stratified analyses where they looked at the effect of receiving the MMR vaccine versus not in subgroups of, of the population was because they had previously been criticized in an earlier study that they had done for basically saying, you know, the basic idea being that let's say that that MMR has an effect on autism only in small subsets of the population that are at high risk for autism. Well, if you combine the entire population in which there's no effect for most people, you would expect to see basically a null effect when in fact there is this subgroup for which there may be a large effect. And so that's they were setting up this study to be able to try and answer that question. It's the theory of um, the invisible pink balloon. That can't I don't be know popped. that theory. I don't <laughs> you know can't that theory. see it, but you can't prove it's not there because it's invisible. 
So mm. d- despite the earlier mere 500,000 cohort study that found no association, that is not good enough evidence. So we have to go well, to $650,000 well, and look it, for it, the it, uber it, high risk. I mean, the, the, the illogic behind all of this just drives me bonkers, to be quite I, see, serious. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you there. I, I don't think it's, well, I, I don't think it was likely that we were going to find anything. It doesn't seem to me implausible to say that there may be, you know, interactions between MMR, let's uh-uh. say, theoretically. Uh-uh. I totally don't buy some, it. I can see where you're going, some, but I don't buy it. And, and something else. And we'd want to know that if it were true. I'm not saying it is true. It's not true. Look, I'm I, saying theoretically, we'd want to know if it's true and it's reasonable to ask the question. If we were dealing with a legitimate scientific question at this point, you might have a point. However, we're not. Because the way this all began was in totally bad faith from the get-go. There was never any biological, plausibly reason why the measles and mumps rubella vaccine should cause autism in the first place. And we know okay. that the only reason we are where we are, because of Andrew Wakefield's now known to be fraudulent paper, which has been okay. retracted and he's lost his medical license and was, di- and, and had basically had to flee the country but, to avoid prosecution. Yeah. But I agree with Matt. I, you know, th- and now can, we've got can, two but, decades of research showing nothing, nothing, but, nothing, but nothing, cons- nothing, 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 cons- and yet it keeps going. But considering the damage that has been done, I think it's incumbent upon us to keep hammering this nail so that the public will eventually get it. And the more ways, more tools we have to refute it, the, the more powerful our argument is. And my hope is that the more effective we're going to be at, 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 at calling this, this I mean, catastrophe. But how many tools do we need? I mean, we've got multiple meta-analyses now. We have, you know, cumulative cohort exposure in the millions of children, and there's nothing, 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 again and again and again, nothing except for this crazy snowball that fell down the hill because of fraud. All right, let's, talk, <laughs> let's turn Matt's microphone back on. Okay, so, so what I want to ask you guys is, and and you basically answered it, Chris, and I'm sure you have the same done. What was your, what was your prior before you you saw the study? There was no association. association. Totally no association. No, no association. Right. right. So so you went into this with a prior. Yeah. Okay. Now tell me about the study. Was it? I mean, obviously, and I agree with everything that you said, Chris. But was this a a good study to lay? these fears to rest. It was an excellent study if one is operating in good faith. However, that, okay. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying the authors were, these authors were not operating? No, I'm, I'm saying that the, the no. debate about whether MMR causes autism is no longer about science. And there That's will never true. be enough science to to persuade this the anti-vaccine movement that this is not true. Yes. It is, I, it is I, not I about the science go, anymore. I agree with that. But, go, but hang on. But go back to my, my original question, which is, was this a good study? It's an outstanding study that yet okay, again— Okay, tell me why. Why is this an outstanding study? It had an enormous sample size. It was like the the, the degree of follow up and ascertainment of the of the of the exposure and the outcomes was pristine. They had like all of pristine. these nested sub analyses built in there, looking for this like, well, maybe it's only the kids who are at the highest, highest, highest risk, and they'll be triggered somehow, and that wasn't picked up in the larger five hundred thousand person cohort. And they looked at that, and still nothing, you know. And I think all of that put together. We are in this crazy whack-a-mole situation where every time a new study comes out that yet again shows there's no association, the anti-vaccine movement in bad faith just shifts the terms and it, and, and it's it's like trying to play this game at an amusement park. But it isn't fundamentally about the research anymore. So we it's should, about okay. so we should something else. stop trying is what you're saying. I don't know, but I think the way we are trying is not going to work 
on this one because here we are. And, and the rates, uh, despite the cumulative <laughs> evidence of decades now, the rates of an- vaccine refusal are going up, not down. So we are clearly and, and, losing based on the scientific approach. And so to be clear, the answer to my question was outstanding study. <laughs> yeah, I think I said that. <laughs> okay. I was buried in there someplace. But I'm Don? annoyed at this point. I'm annoyed. Don? And can I say one more thing? Nick, can you cut his mic? <laughs> I, I, I want to say one more thing because I, I am I'm truly pissed off at this point. And like the there is there is a, a certain element of of tremendous hypocrisy in this in this. And and what I mean by sure. that is like so the 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 two things that this study showed, one is, yet again, no association despite looking at these high-risk subgroups. And two, they looked at this autism risk factor score that they you know, they did to sort of stratify the kids who would be highest and lowest right, risk. Right. And they, they validated that score. And one of the things on that score that seems to, again, predict autism is maternal smoking. So where is the outrage? Around maternal smoking as an actual as cause as of autism, to, as, as opposed, opposed to, to MMR, as a non-cause. Yeah, yeah, Why point. are people not going berserk about that? And the answer is that one is all about individual decision making, and the other one is about this sort of conspiracy theory of the of the evil pharmaceutical industry foisting this thing upon it in cahoots with the medical association. Chris, don't don't mince your words. Tell us how you really feel. So 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 excellent study. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. Done. Yes. Done. Yes. You there? Yes. <laughs> What about you? No, I think it was a very good study, too. Why? All the reasons that Chris stated, I think it was, it, it, it very specifically dealt with a weakness of a, of a prior approach using a data set that did not overlap, had enough power to do the, the subgroup analyses and the sensitivity analyses. I think in a way that, you know, convinced me along the lines of what you were saying before um, about the, the, you know, despite the fact that there's no biological plausibility to it, to the possibility serendipitously that there was an association. It, they 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 didn't find it. One of my wait 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 wait. Are you still Matt, going? Matt, no no but Matt, no, no, no 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 Chris. If 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 you, if you if you'll talk about the science, I will let right, you into I'm, this conversation. I'm going to talk about the science. One of, one of my favorite <laughs> studies that looked at the the relationship between the MMR and autism was the study by by a, a Japanese scientist called Honda in Yokohama, Japan, and they took advantage of this natural experiment where. The, the MR vaccine was being used at the same time that an autism screening program had been launched in Yokohama. So not surprising, the rates of autism were going up and up and up, and people were concerned that maybe it was caused by the MMR. So what happened is there was a massive refusal of the MMR vaccine in Yokohama. And so the rates of the MMR fell off, and then the politicians got all weak need, and they actually stopped the policy of giving, of, of giving the MMR at all. And so there was about a decade where there was no MMR use at all in Yokohama, and yet the rates of autism continued to go up and up. Just and up in Yokohama, not in the rest of Japan. I don't know about the rest of the Chan- Japan because they didn't study the rest oh. of Japan. But oh. in Yokohama, where they were looking, they found that the the two were clearly That's distinct. That's very cool. It's a very convincing cool experiment. experiment of yeah. like this is this, this is all about ascertainment bias and uh, sociological factors, and is really not about biology. Fair enough, and I and I, I think that's pretty interesting. So so my concern so. Let me play devil's advocate here just a little bit and say that I think that if you looked at this carefully, if you looked at this study carefully, Chris, that you would see some concerns very similar to the kinds of concerns that you tend to raise when we talk about diet, mm-hmm. that 95% of this population mm-hmm. was vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the kids who didn't receive the vaccination, the 5% of kids who didn't receive vaccination just strike me as they are very different from the kids who did receive vaccination. And 
you got to start asking yourself, what are the potential confounding problems that would arise when you're trying to compare these two groups? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that explains, you know, a, a, an effect that would have been there. I don't believe there was an effect there. You know, the other thing I worry about is this is data from the time period when when the Wakefield paper had already occurred and the, you know, the anti-vax movement had started. And so you could see a logic that said that if you had concern that your child was at risk for autism, you might be one of the ones who is more likely not to vaccinate your kids. Now, right. that would paradoxically, I think, actually make things go in the opposite direction. It would, it would make... It would make receipt of MMR look protective, as as these data show, because the people who are at highest risk of getting autism are selectively opting out of the MMR. Yeah. So, like, right. and and they looked at it in this paper because they looked at, at at families where a previous sibling had had autism, and indeed those yep. families were far less likely to vaccinate the second child with the MMR because of yeah. the previous child being diagnosed with autism. So, I think that is why we're seeing this, zero, this hazard ratio of zero point seven three, even though I believe, and probably you and and and, and Don believe that there. There is no effect either way. I, I, I do believe that. Now, obviously, my prior was the same as your prior. But I, I guess my question is because, I, I, you know, I think we all agree that generally speaking, this was a was a good study and it certainly conforms to our priors. But did our priors make us give this study a pass? I mean, the other thing I worry, I, you know, I think about studies like this. I think about non-differential misclassification. You have a null finding. So you would worry about, you know, potential of bias towards the null from non-differential Exposure or outcome misclassification. Now, it doesn't quite work because in that case, if you correct it for the misclassification, you actually find an even more protective effect. So maybe I'm I'm barking up the wrong tree, but it, it just seems to me that just because I had a strong prior doesn't seem to me that we don't want to actually go through the work of trying to figure out whether or not this is a good study. Otherwise, we run into the the confirmation bias problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fair point. Yep. If if we were that's to said, I think it's a good study. If, if well, we were to apply, you know, Bayes' theorem here and say, like, what are the sequ yeah. the impact of the sequential priors? We go all the way back to Wakefield and say, what were the odds a priori that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine yeah. caused autism? And I would have said at that time, not knowing very much, the odds are against maybe a hundred to one yep. against. Then yep. the data he presented, if it had been true, and now we know it wasn't true, was all fraudulent. But if it had been true, it doesn't change very much because of the design of the study. The original study exactly. itself was of such poor quality that it proved nothing other than raising this tantalizing theory. And since then, we have had now two dozen big studies. And if you look at each one of those in yeah. succession and maybe say off the top of your head, each one of those negative results would drop your odds by tenfold. Right, we are now in the million to one against range All right. of this Nick, being Nick, true. Can you remove and, Chris's soapbox for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel like I'm on a roll here, but yeah, like 27 minutes there. Matt, you, you I, I, I hear what you're saying about the fact that the unvaccinated children could have been systematically different than the vaccinated children for a whole host yeah. of hypothetical reasons. But looking at table, at the table, which we typically call table one, there were. A, couple of differences, but not a tremendous yep. amount of difference. So you're no, not saying you. that you you saw something in this paper which indicated that the nope. vac unvaccinated children were systematically different than the vaccinated children. You're just saying, in theory, it could be. I'm saying that, I, yeah, no, right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Whenever, whenever I see a very small percentage of the population receiving 
a treatment, whether it be a drug or a vaccine or whatever it is. Especially when it's a decision. Yeah, my thought immediately goes to why. Why? What? What is it about folks who made the decision or for whatever reason weren't able to access services that, that makes them different? And I think, you know, we see that with drugs a lot. So in public health programs and resource limited settings where, you know, everyone essentially should be receiving the same you know, in terms of what I'm studying, HIV drugs, unless you have a contraindication, it becomes very hard to study those observationally because the people who didn't get the drug, you know, the small percentage of the population who didn't get the standard drug, didn't get the standard drug for a reason. And so, you know, I think it's a, a fair criticism. I don't, when I put it all together in my head, it's not going to change things. Right. And so, but I, I do think it's, it's you know, it's worth going through the, the effort. I also, I was interested to, it was interesting to me that if you read their limitations section, it was quite short, and it didn't actually touch on the confounding issue or the selection bias issue. They did talk about the confounding issue a, a tiny bit or the misclassification. So I just, you know, it, it just struck me as there is, it is worth thinking through your process and whether your process is clouded by this conforming to what you expect. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, whether we, we have to do that work even when it conforms to what we expect. Along those lines, um, it's noted that the primary funding source was Novo Nordisk Foundation. Novo Nordisk, yep. And I looked through, they, they, they don't produce an MMR vaccine. No, they just do diabetes care products mainly. Yeah. Right, and I'm yep. curious why they would have, and if, if their so, participation in this, way, in, in this study could in no, any way confer a conflict of interest. I don't think so. Novo, my understanding is Novo Nordisk is a foundation. It's not a like the Merck Foundation, it's not a drug company, and right, they so fund totally all kinds of research. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I don't. Worth I don't noting, think so. but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I think I think we are all in agreement on this one. This uh, is yet another citation for the retracted Wakefield paper. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. He keeps his H index is killing me. It really is. <laughs> um, uh, and last thing. So they do you what's your opinion on uh, we've talked about this before what's your opinion on whether when studies tell you what their strengths are which this one does <laughs> I guess it depends <laughs> Why don't you tell us what you think man I no, I, I I'm pretty mixed on it I know some some people who have very strong feelings that strengths you know, should to, not be know, mentioned to, to do. You, no that you don't that that your strengths should be obvious and you don't have to go around Tooting your own horn, it's a certain, and other people feel like certain, you, know, you should point it out. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's too self-aggrandizing. It's well. It's you, you're certainly conflicted, right? You're trying to sell a story. If you're trying to, uh, no, I think it's a good well, thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good. You okay. know, it's it's a it's a summary. It's a summary of, of why you should buy this. Why you yeah. should believe this. Yeah, I mean, th like this is a, a, a an incredibly large cohort with very high rates of follow-up. And yeah, let's, almost I, I, we have to be careful. I, I do want to. I do want to go back to this because it's fantastic that this was an incredibly large study. But if it's a bias, yeah, yeah, study, yeah, 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 yeah. Then the larger it is, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, didn't you mention that in episode three, five, know. ten, twenty, thirty? I, I can see the anti-vaccine tweets quoting you here, right I, here, Matt. The study is invalid, according to Professor Matt Fox, because the biases cannot be eliminated. Absolutely not. It's, the I study do is too big, double, and therefore disproves itself. Confirm. All right, I have one last question. Okay, go for it. How did they know that the balloon was pink if it was invisible? Well, this is it's one of those weird. paradoxes. You can't prove it other ways. And you All know, right, it, was the, it was the 800-pound invisible gorilla holding onto the balloon while standing on an elephant. <laughs> also invisible. In that room. In that room. Moving on. Yes, moving on. Okay. 
So for our second segment, we wanted to uh, talk about a commentary which Don found, which asked the question of whether email is making professors stupid. Uh, so this was something stupider. that was published in the... Stupider? Yeah. Is it stupider? Yeah. Sorry, stupider. I thought the title is, is email making professors stupid? Question mark. Anyway, it's published in the Chronicle of Higher Education by Cal Newport. And he, if I understand correctly, is the author of the book Deep Work, which I have either of you guys read? Nope. No. I, I, it's It's on my list of things that I wanted to read. But the basic argument that he makes in this piece is that he talks about a professor named Donald Knuth, Knuth, a renowned emeritus professor at Stanford who does not use email. And on his website, he offers the following explanation for his refusal to use email. He says, email is a wonderful thing for people whose role in life is to be on top of things, but not for me. My role is to be on the bottom of things. And hmm, I like the that. basic idea is that email and internet has allowed a reduction in staff support to help faculty do a lot of the administrative tasks that they used to do yep, uh, or, or that they now have to do themselves that used to be done by somebody else. So, you know, now that the internet makes it very easy for us to fill out our own travel expense reports, when we travel, we do that on our own now, we don't have support for it. And a lot of those tasks have just shifted onto faculty and and the point here being email is one of those things that just makes it easier and easier for people to communicate with us, but it, it makes us have to spend more time doing administrative tasks and tasks that are not oh, the hmm. big picture tasks that faculty like to be doing. He is right, actually. So, so, so hmm. fair enough. So he says, so in 2014, uh, the Boise State anthropologist John Zeker released the results of a faculty time use study which found that the average professor spent a little over 60 hours a week working, which 30% of that time dedicated to email and meetings. And so the idea here is Seems that we slow under... To me. Yeah, I know. We should move there. The idea being that sounds we, idyllic. Under, <laughs> we undervalue uninterrupted concentration. Yes. And, yes. and so his argument, the, the author's argument here, is that if any industry is going to lead the way in taking a break from email, it should be higher education because... Number one, universities have more freedom to experiment than businesses struggling in a competitive environment. Number two, by prioritizing deep work, universities would get better at their primary tasks of research and pedagogy. And finally, number three, a reorganization of academic life to support careful thought and sustained attention would produce benefits that extended well beyond the campus. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the argument. Do you buy it? I do. I do, too. I, I definitely buy it. I mean, I, it, it's, it may be completely idiosyncratic on my part, but I suspect not. But when I have a heavy intellectual task to do, like sitting down and writing an introduction or writing a paper or some sort of deep think, I, I, I'm like the dog that circles bef to, before they lie down. I just do that for yeah. 10, 15 <laughs> minutes in the, and sometimes longer. But once I'm down and once I'm in the zone... It it I, I'm much more efficient at, at 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 getting stuff done and getting getting work done. And if I'm interrupted, I it just it's automatically back. go back to the beginning. I have to do that circling thing again. And it's just really really inefficient if you have to do deep thinking and 
concentrated analysis. And, and writing is like that. And writing takes that kind of a, a level of concentration. You can't really do it when you're otherwise distracted or focused in other ways. And I think in addition to that, Twitter is, is, is really corrosive Most in that way. things Most about Twitter. Twitter, I apologize. <laughs> Twitter is amazingly words. corrosive for that because you're constantly wanting to find out, all right, Stop what it. am I missing? What am I missing that's out there that, yeah. you know. Twitter, Twitter, don't listen to him. He's a bad man. <laughs> Twitter's feeling sad now. I, I, I was uh, struck by your comments about like what are the, the, what university was it where faculty have this beautiful 30% only that's destroyed yeah. by email and where, where was that? No, no, he, he was at a particular institution. It was Boise State, but Boise I State. think it was yeah, a, let's all move to but Boise. I don't think it was, I don't think he was surveying people too. at Boise State. I think it was a larger anyway. faculty survey. So I, I, I don't share your, your, both of your, uh, deep frustrations with. Let me ask you one well, question so, before, so, Matt, before you go into this. You're let on me sabbatical, ask you, dude. Let me ask you, you this one question. to London. A, you're in, uh, on sabbatical <laughs> and B, how many unread emails are in your inbox right now? Zero. Ah, <laughs> so you are Zero. one of those people for whom email is created. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the I, thing. So I'm like you, Don. I, I, I agree with you completely that. Email is is very distracting, and I especially when people when reply. I'm trying all. to do anything creative, oh, man, I am I am so I am so easily distracted. But I have found, but 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 hang on, but but just because that is true doesn't mean that I don't feel like email has made me a more productive person, and not just email, but a lot of these sort of tasks. E, but email is I get man, nah, that's not totally true. Email is not one of them that I would say has been a huge burden or an interruption in my life. You know, I'd love to have more support on, say, submitting travel expense reports or forms to the IRB or, you know, writing reports to funders and all those things. That I would like more administrative support for. Email, where email, I feel like that's how I interact with my my collaborators and my colleagues. Can it be a distraction? Absolutely. Can it, you know, can I spend time emailing because I don't actually want to be productive right now or I want to be productive but I feel like it's too much effort absolutely but it, it I mean I, it's just hard for me to see how email on balance is a bad thing and, I, I, I mean so I have a suggestion for, I have a su- suggestion for improving things and, and yep. probably clawing back five of that 30 percent if people vow not to hit reply all with a thank you ever with a thank you <laughs> in particular with a thank you because the number yeah, of minutes is. that i have spent opening and reading emails that are completely useless as I could, i'll never could, get those hours back podcast on the etiquette of reply yeah. to all we have we have yeah. discussed this yeah. at length Gotta get rid of that key. I, I am totally with you it feels like there should be like a safety like you know a, a pop-up menu that says do you really mean to reply all <laughs> exclamation point underlined right. bold right italics <laughs> Nothing can but do more to the point to know that you said thanks. But more to the point, email is not going anywhere, right? Correct. I mean, this 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 professor can do it because he is, you know, I mean, there are people at the ends of the distribution who are able to buck the trends and do things totally differently. Although For the rest of us, although I think email's not going anywhere, but I think that there is something that we can do about the unintended perception that has accrued over the lifespan of email in our lives. And that is that 
the people who email you and expect a response, expect a response immediately or yeah. almost immediately. And that does cut into the, these, you know, these deep dive times when we have to focus and concentrate. Because if somebody is expecting a response in 10 minutes and you go a day without responding to them, then they get increasingly nasty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we can change yeah, that perception. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with the sentiment, but I do think that you can you can pick and choose which people are you really need to respond to immediately and which people you sort of, you know, you don't care as much if they wait a day or two. But well, but more than what you can turn email off, right? I mean, or declare email those- bankruptcy. How about that? <laughs> I've done that. Chapter 11. I've done that. I've, sa- I've said I'm so far behind that if you that if you have are, are awaiting a response, uh, I'm not going to answer anybody. If you're waiting for a response, you have to recontact me because um, I'm like just we, we, woefully behind three, in my responses. So Don and Chris and I used to work with a professor who it seemed like roughly every six months there was a new story as to how his computer was run over or it uh, got fried somehow and somehow all of his emails disappeared when that happened like brilliant somehow they just you know and just he would you know say resend anything which you know fair enough okay that that is a strategy but you can you can close your email when you want to work for extended period of times you don't have to allow it to be as intrusive but more to the point the last point i want to make which is the motivation for this article is this professor at uh, Boise State. The, Boise State? The Stanford. No, Stanford. Stanford. Who is doing this and it seems to be doing wonders for him. And I think in general, we focus too much on looking at successful people and asking them how they became successful and thinking that the reasons that they were successful or, or whatever it is that they believe made them successful will make us successful. It seems like a classic case of selection bias. Right. Because Black there mix. are... There are lots of people who probably tried to get rid of email and it would, you know, it would lead to their isolation and their eventual demise, uh, you well, know, losing their jobs. So, what, so I just. But what about that, that highly, that very successful book that was published by that Harvard Business School professor, The 50 Habits of Highly Successful People? You're saying that that's completely uh, off the mark? Well, I'm saying I, I don't, I, I actually have never read the book, but I, what I'm saying is, you know, you, you people who will often say, you know, well, it's so important to, you know, to take a break from work. Mm-hmm. And well, there are lots of people who take breaks from work and actually don't succeed. So just because it worked for that person doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. And if you really wanted to know, you'd have to do a study. And I'm oh, not geez. arguing anybody should oh, do geez. studies. I'm just saying I get I get mm-hmm. I, I get a little bit. of I get hives a little bit when I think about mm-hmm. trying to take advice from people who have been successful and assuming that it's going to work for mm-hmm. me. The art of All the right. deal, for example. Yeah. The, oh, oh, please. That's, a, that's an interesting one. Oh, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> all right. Should we leave it there? Yep. Yep. Okay. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing Amusing, where we want to highlight some of those other things. Can I go first? Those... Those study, yeah, I won't even do my introduction. Go for it. <laughs> All right. So we, we had a highly successful haiku challenge to our listeners. And yes, I we wanna, did. And I want to follow that up with a walkie-talkie challenge. A what now? walkie-talkie challenge. So the person who coined the phrase walkie-talkie was um, quite creative in describing the actual item in a way that made a whole lot of sense. And yep. so I want to give some examples of other items that should be renamed 
according to the same approach and, if, um, and throw out a challenge to our listeners to see if they can come up with others. Okay. So the following is stamps. Are we, are we supposed to be jumping yeah. in? You're well, you're supposed to try to guess, but you're probably not going to be able to guess. But let me, let me read the first <laughs> two so that you can get the idea how this works. Okay. So the guy who, uh, so the, in terms of the walkie-talkie naming device, stamps would be called licky stickies. Licky stickies. Yep. Oh. Defibrillators would be called hardy starty. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Bumblebees. Buzzy, fuzzy. Fuzzy, buzzy. Right, Very enough. good. And a pregnancy test. Oh, hold on. Let me think about that. Um, is this, I, I don't know. I, I, no, no, I don't want to say anything because I'll get in trouble. Maybe, baby. Oh, so good. <laughs> Fork. EDPD. Is it stabby grabby? Stabby grabby. Stabby grabby. Socks. Stinky. Feedy heaties. Feedy heaties. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a hippo water horse floaty boaty <laughs> oh that, that that one doesn't work nobody and how about nightmare uh, uh sleepy night sleepy nighty friday screamy dreamy oh nighty friday though Ooh. that would work too all right anyway so that's the challenge to our listeners okay wait can i add one yeah darts would be pointy throwy <laughs> pointy throwy pointy throwy i like that yes Pointy throwy. Yeah. Those are good. All right, Chris, what do you got for us? All right. Well, I decided to do a vaccine-themed wacky and weird, but it's actually not in the least bit wacky and weird. It's a little bit scary. It's this uh, paper I found, we, we talked about it earlier, called Weaponized Health Communication, Twitter Bots and Russian Trolls Amplify the Vaccine Debate by, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Bronia Broniatowski and colleagues published in the journal, American Journal of Public Health in 2018. And so they were curious about the vigorous anti-vaccine movement and how it plays out on Twitter specifically. And they start off with this kind of remarkable fact, which is that 95% of, you know, individuals in the United States accept the vaccine uh, series as, you know, uh, recommended by CDC. And yet 50% of all vaccine-related Twitter memes are anti-vaccine. Okay, so there's a 5% a of the population that's contributing half of all vaccine information on Twitter, which is kind of an astonishing thought. And so they, they, they decided that they wanted to study this a little bit formally. And so they, they did a, 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 you know, a, a, uh, an analysis of Twitter along with a, the most important interesting part, which was a content analysis of, of what the actual messages were. And they linked this back to many of the known sources of, of tweets, hmm. several of which are the Russian, what it was, an internet research authority, right. um, which is a, you know, has been identified, of course, as a propaganda machine. Now, the, they, they asked three basic questions. One, which is, do bots and trolls, and a bot is, a, is an automated program that you program into Twitter that you know, either retweets things by looking for certain keywords or amplifies the date by adding in further information that's been programmed in from some sort of a server. And then trolls, as opposed to bots, which are automated, trolls are people who lurk on chat rooms and you know, say snarky things, but sometimes are also bots, uh, interestingly, that they have like programs that are written to write nasty things and like try to intimidate people on chat rooms. And so th the first question they asked is like, what proportion of bots, of, of Twitter, Twitter traffic is linked to bots and trolls? And it turns out that it's massive, that a lot of what we see coming out on tweet on Twitter is not coming from people, but it's coming out of computers that have been programmed simply to generate uh. this noise. A, a vast amount of that is not actually generated by individuals, but is just there to piss 
people off and drive debate. Insidious. It is insidious. And then the second question they asked is like, are bots and trolls more likely to tweet polarizing or anti-vaccine commentary? And the answer is absolutely yes. But polarizing is the most interesting part of this because polarizing means taking two ends of the same debate strongly in favor and strongly against. You may say, like, well, why would they do that? Aren't they trying to discredit vaccines? That is not what they're trying to do. Right. This is not what the Russian bots and trolls are trying to do. What they're trying to do is to polarize the debate amongst the American people because they're using vaccine attitudes, which are, of course, very emotional, to drive a wedge into our society. To, and, and so they're basically saying, you know, very extreme things on both ends to get Americans to shout at each other more on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Same thing with politics. And same thing with politics. It is just insidious. It is a weaponized use of, of inf- information. Now, some of the, the, the third part of this was to look at the actual content of the messages. And some of these, I'm just going to quote a few, which are really interesting. So, like, here are some anti-vaccine themes. Did you know that hashtag vaccines cause autism? So, you know, here's another one which says, did you know that vaccines contain mercury, deadly poisoning? Of course, vaccines do not contain mercury. They haven't for a long, long time. Most diseases that vaccines target are relatively harmless in many cases, thus making vaccines unnecessary. So now we have the pro-vaccine themes coming out. One, you can't fix stupidity. Let them die from measles. Like, you know, (laughs) clearly just trying to irritate people. Uh, Vaccine causes autism. Bye, you are not my friend anymore. And try to think we your brain next. It's like really kind of like sticking it in, in people's eyes and making people not actually debate, but just yell at each other in, in, fury, in, in fury. Vaccines are a parent's choice. The choice of color is a little coffin. Oh, wow. Oh. Wow. And so this is what is in fact going on. And Lori Garrett, the science writer, has a really great article online. You should just search for it talking about this because it's not just the Russians, but that there are all sorts of advocacy, politically aligned advocacy groups that are using vaccines as a wedge issue simply with the goal of dividing us as a society. And I, and, I, and I think that the cynicism that goes into that, to think that the victims of this are children who are actually going to get sick and some die right. because of this attempt to politicize and to, to divide American society around this issue. Just the, the, ethic, the ethical awfulness of that is hard to, hard to wrap I, your head I, I around. I think it's, 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 a, it's amazing, too, that now we're beginning to see children who are in mid-adolescence going against their parents there was one that yeah. just testified before Congress in terms of wanting to get vaccines. And, you know, it's not going to be long before these children will hold their parents responsible if they, in fact, get damaged by getting a disease that That's they could have been vaccinated against. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I have to follow that. Sorry for, <laughs> sorry for leaving on that on cheery note, but uh, yeah, it's uh, a terribly depressing article, actually. It's it a downer. It really is. Okay. Well, mine <laughs> on that, is, on uh, that high note. is not as depressing. So have you guys uh, ever heard expressions, beer before wine and you'll be fine? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. I saw this paper come out. It's great paper, right? We just talked about this day to day. This so is, this I, is compelling I, science. I, Go ahead, you, I've never actually heard this. I've never heard oh, the really? expression beer before wine. Beer before wine. liquor, never no, sicker? No, I've heard beer before liquor, never sicker. Yeah, it's the other one. Liquor beer before, before wine, beer feeling fine. But, but apparently there is this, this belief that you can drink beer before wine and that's okay. But if you drink wine before beer, you will end up... With a hangover. And so they, these folks from uh, Witten University, I'm not sure exactly where that is, published paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition just recently called Grape or Grain But Never the Twain, a randomized controlled <laughs> multi-arm match triplet crossover trial of beer and wine. And they actually did the study that you would want to do to try to answer this question, which is they, they had people come in 
they match them on various characteristics that you would think would be uh, reflective of or predictive of, of having a hangover. And then they randomized these triplets. Each one got one of the three options, which was either you got beer before wine. So you would drink beer until a blood alcohol content of 5% and then wine until 0.5%. you got to 11%. 0.05%, right? What's that? Sorry. Sorry. I thought it was like 0.5%. You're right. You're right. 0.05, right? No, 5%. 0.05%. Yeah, sorry. So really low. And then and then wine till 0.11%. Sorry. Uh, and then, that's a lot of and wine. Then, and then you'd see whether or not you got a hangover and then you'd come back like a week later. I can't remember when it was. And then you'd do the opposite. Or you'd start with the wine and then switch to beer. Or you had a third group, which was the control arm in which they just drank Methanol. Uh, beer or wine. <laughs> And then they drank the other. Grain the next alcohol. Time. And so the, what's that? Grain alcohol through funnels. <laughs> and then they followed them up and they went to find out whether or not they, how that severe they reported their hangovers were the next day. And what they found was absolutely nothing. Doesn't seem to matter at all which one you do first. Your hangover is Roughly the same, which I can't say is in any way surprising. Now, that an old what was your apriori? What was your your my your, your was pre-test probability? Was probably BS to begin with. But it's a, did, it's a fantastic. Have you have you guys read the study? No, I haven't. I read did, it. It was great. Did did they did they stratify by red and white wine? Because red wine uh, gives me a definite headache. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Uh, I don't I don't I don't know the answer. To that. I think that well. So they do tell they told us what the wine was. They that's the thing. If you read the study, it's incredibly. Detailed. So the beer used in the study was a premium Pilsner lager recipe from 1847 by Carlsberg. Ooh. Served cold. They also used a 2015 Edel, Edelgraffler. I don't know how you pronounce that. Quality white wine mm-hmm. with an alcohol content of 11.1% served cold at the same temperature as, as the beer. beer. So but no red go. wine. But no red wine. Oh, says, that's an opportunity for a follow-up study. I'm well, sure we can get yeah, a lot of student get, volunteers on that is, one. But remember, the question is not whether or not the red wine gives you the hangover, but whether red wine before beer or after beer makes a difference. Yeah, yeah I think, but I think this, this is the same argument as the, the need to do, look at uh, subspectra of autism susceptible people. It's the same logic. So there, so there, are, some, there are some fantastic lines in here. So, so, so they say their discussion starts off with, in this randomized trial, open label crossover, blah, 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 we were unable to confirm the well-known folklore of drinking beer before wine. Blah, blah, blah. Although this should rob tactical drinkers of the belief that they can reduce the after effects of a heavy night out by careful ordering of beverages, our findings suggest that perceived drunkenness or vomiting are useful predictors of misery in the morning (laughs) after the night before. They did not find a direct correlation between maximal blood alcohol content and hangover intensity, but this should not be misinterpreted as an invitation to drink until the cows come home. (laughs) There is some fantastic other lines, but I won't I won't bore you with them. But I will refer you to that paper. It's worth worth a read. So this underscores the whole concept of pre gaming. Is that like is that like tailgating? That's, that's like drinking before the drinking. Oh wow! Yeah, those, the pump. Uh, those days are definitely over for me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah I can str- I I struggle for a glass the last, of wine these days. The last line of the paper is cheers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it, it was actually that's a really cute. good study, and they had some juicy qualitatives in there. Like about describing yeah. the headaches. So Yeah, it's, 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 it's a great study. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you get any feedback or this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at, at ProfMadFox or you can tweet Chris 
at id.gill or don at at dthea1. And you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>